Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Stop. Piki mai kake mai and a big welcome to Our Changing World, to Tato Al Horihori, ko Alison Balance Tene. Coming up later, we'll find out how native birds are faring in our capital city. But first, Kauri dieback disease is in the headlines again. The aggressive soil borne Phytophthora has been spreading through Kauri forests in the North Island. About 19% of kauri trees in the Waitakere Ranges in West Auckland are infected, and Auckland City has closed the region's walking tracks in an effort to slow the spread of the disease. Now concerns are being raised about the health of Northland's kauri forests, places like Waipoa, home to impressive forest giants such as Tane Mahuta that are many thousands of years old. Meanwhile, scientists hope that a greenhouse full of tiny kauri seedlings may just hold the secret to future generations of trees that are resistant to kauri dieback. They're part of a research programme to better understand the disease, and I'm off to Sion in Rotorua to meet forest pathologist Nari Williams and plant propagator Colin Falls to find out more about the baby kauri trees and the research. We're standing down in the Scion nursery and we're outside what we call the Cody House, which is a dedicated facility that's been established so that we can grow all of the Cody seedlings that we grow for our research under hygienic conditions so that we're really confident that they don't have any diseases on them to start with. Now, I've been firmly told I'm not allowed in there. There's a big sign on the door that says authorised personnel only, so fair enough. But I gather you're the person who goes in there and does all the work, Colin. Uh, yes, I do the day-to-day propagation. Prior to entering the environment, I basically uh, put on a pair of sterile overalls. Uh, I also sterilise my hands and I change my footwear. Prior to moving any material into the polyhouse, uh, it all has to be sterilised. It enters an antechamber. Uh, the antechamber is sprayed down and then that equipment or materials is, is brought into the environment. Yeah, this is unique for Cody and it recognises the fact that nurseries actually present a real risk for spreading not only Cody dieback but other Phytophthora pathogens. They spread in water and in soil and so if you get an infestation within a nursery situation you have the chance of spreading it wherever those plants happen to go. The facility here, we grow everything on raised benches above a cement floor, so there's no risk of transferring of pathogens from the soil um, onto those plants. And so a lot of the controls that we have implemented are about making sure that there's very conscious movement of material in and out of this facility. Everything that's coming in has been sterilised, and so then when we send things out, we've got a lot of confidence that they're actually free of disease. We can vaguely see through. So what have you actually got going on in there? Uh, We've actually got two environments. One environment, we sow the seed uh, and do the propagation, and that's got plastic cover with uh, insect mesh. And the other environment uh, is without the plastic, it's it's insect mesh. And once the seedlings are a year old, they're moved into the outside environment for hardening off. How big are your kauri seedlings? 
They were sown 14 months ago. Normally it takes about two to three weeks to germinate uh, in seed trays and then they've been pricked out into Queensland tubes. One slight difference as far as propagation goes is because of the need for sterility, we've actually sterilised all the mix prior to using. Uh, so that tends to influence fertiliser levels. So that's been a bit of a learning process as we go. So why do you need everything to be sterile in there? Once the scientists have finished using the seedlings uh, for their experiments, as part of the agreement with the uh, mana whenua that have uh, provided the seed, the seedlings will ultimately be returned back to the mana whenua for planting into the forest. So we need to guarantee 100% that we aren't transferring any disease. How many seedlings have you got in there? Approximately 10,000. Seeds for those come from a range of different places? Basically uh, Northland, Waitakere, Hunuas and the Coromandel. So what are the big questions you're trying to answer in there? So we're trying to understand whether or not there is natural resistance to Cody dieback infection within the Kauru population. And so we're collecting seed across the natural range of Cody. And then in our last year's um, seed collection, we focused in on areas where we know the disease is established. So in the Waitakere ranges and also up in Waipoa Forest, where there's a long history of um, Cody dieback. So this year we've gone in and targeted the healthy trees within those infested stands and we're hoping that those trees have already been through a first round of selection out in the field in that their siblings have already died but they're still standing so we're hoping that there'll be natural resistance in those seeds. It used to be thought that Cody dieback was a, a relatively new disease. Has our thinking on that changed recently? There's been some research that has come out that has questioned how long it might have been here and to date uh, we're still not really sure on what that time frame actually is. I think the key thing is that the pathogen is here and it is spreading and it is causing disease and the rate at which we see this pathogen moving in the Cody trees suggests that they haven't seen it before. They haven't built up selection for resistance and that's one clue to suggest that it's been introduced. What's the next stage? You've got all of these thousands of seedlings. What's going to happen with them? So we actually work um, on this project in collaboration with Landcare Research and so we send a selection of each um, group of trees up to Landcare and up there they infect them with the pathogen that causes Cody dieback. The nice thing about working in tandem with Landcare is they're effectively doing everything blind. Um, so they don't know where these trees have come from, what they are, um, they just do the analysis and give the results through as a blind study and they've also got the um, facilities up there to do that and so what they're looking for is the trees that survive inoculation. We need to be mindful that when we infect in a glasshouse um, setting like that it's artificial. We're adding more pathogen than the trees might see out in the field. So that's the first step in screening. We find the ones that actually keep surviving despite the fact we tried to kill them. And then we would take some of these healthy ones that are still here at Zion that don't have any pathogen out into the field and run field trials with those to see if we see the same thing out in the field. How long does it take when you're doing that testing to see a response? I mean, how quickly does something sicken and die? Lancare's studies have shown that we can infect the plants really effectively within um, about three weeks. But then some of them are taking up to six months to die. 
and some of them are even still alive after a six-month period, and that's where they've stopped that initial screening study. Out in the field, we have no idea how long these trees are taking to die. And if you take some of the significant trees and the like, size of Cody, we know that they've got a huge physiological resource, that it's going to take them a long time to get stressed out and start showing us that they're actually sick. But in those land care research Manaki Whenua trials, have they had individuals that haven't succumbed? Yes, yeah, we have some individuals that have still survived through that inoculation. And across that six-month period, they're reflooding regularly to keep on trying to challenge them with the pathogen. So that's starting to be exciting. Early days, but at least despite our efforts, we haven't killed them all. So you're being particularly nice to those ones here in the nursery? Yes, yes, they get treated with kid gloves. So do you know where the seeds came from so you can go back to the wild and and actually, I suppose, check and make sure that the original plant is still ticking along okay? Yes, we individually record every parent tree. So all of the seedlings are grown up in families. And so one family is all from seed collected from the same tree. So that means that we know who the mother was in that um, it's the tree that produced the cone. The pollen has come in either from that tree or from a neighbouring tree. Um, But we can trace back each family. So the resistance could be coming either from the mother or the father? Yes, it could. Yep. And by looking at how the individuals within a family all succumb to disease and then going back to that mother tree and looking at um, some of the genetic markers within that family, we can start to understand whether or not it's the mother or the father that's actually contributing. So is anyone looking at the genetics of this at the moment? We've got some preliminary studies um, on the material that's been collected here. But, yeah, until we've got all of the screening results um, to match back to those genetic markers, it's still a work in progress. Do we have a genome sequence for Cody yet? No, we don't. Would that be useful? It would be useful in um, some applications, uh, certainly. It's not essential for all of this research, but there are opportunities with the information within a genome to accelerate some of the aspects of research. How well do we understand the Phytophthora itself and and how that lives and how it moves through the soil and what it's doing once it's in the trees? Within the Healthy Trees, Healthy Future program, we've been focusing on understanding Phytophthora pathogens in general because there's not only Phytophthora agathodicida causing Cody dieback, but there's a range of other Phytophthora species, some of which are also present um, with Cody dieback and are also good pathogens in their own right, or I should say bad pathogens in their own right. Um, so understanding what makes Phytophthora agathodicida so aggressive is really important because the other ones are causing disease but not to the same extent. So we're understanding some of those mechanisms and working with the likes of Massey University to really tease those out. There's then the more applied things out in the field and there is a lot there that hasn't been addressed to date. We don't understand what we call the latency of disease. So the period between when a tree gets infected and when it starts to show symptoms. We then also don't know how fast the pathogen is actually moving through the soil and at what rate. Now, combining those two bits of really important information, we can then start to understand where the pathogen is distributed. So it's really important that with Cody dieback, we don't manage the disease, the expression of symptoms on the tree, that we manage the presence of the pathogen because it's moving the pathogen around the countryside that's actually spreading you know, what we then, years down the track, see is the disease. So there are some really important things that need to be addressed. 
So do any other trees get affected by this phytophthora? At this stage we don't know, but we are um, just starting some research that's looking at what the alternative host may be for Phytophthora agathodicida. And we know from similar examples um, elsewhere that some plants can harbour these pathogens without showing symptoms. So it may be that there are other plants out there in the Cody Forest that are happy hosts but not actually showing any decline. We need to understand whether those alternate hosts are there because that starts to give us some information about how the pathogen's moving through the soil and through the forest system. How do you go about even beginning to think what those alternative hosts might be? I mean, you've got a whole <laughs> forest full of trees. Yes, but you start by looking at what plants are associated with Cody and um, from there you get a, a fairly natural list of what you would expect to be there. And so we're in the process at the moment of collecting seed from a list of 36 um, plant species that will be growing up over the next couple of years and then screening both in the laboratory and looking to see whether we can find individual plants out in the forest in infested areas to see if they actually already have the pathogen on the roots. Are you going to be germinating some more Cody seedlings? Yes, uh, this year we've got um, roughly more than 100 separate seed lots and they were sown about six weeks ago and so the, the germination has just started. And what number are you aiming for? We would like to produce approximately 15,000 seedlings this year. And then you're going to keep on doing this year after year, is that the plan? Within the Healthy Trees program we're aiming to have one more um, seed collection and there's an opportunity to expand back out to um, a broader range of Cody having focused in on the Waitakere's and Waipoa last year. But then this is only the beginning of what will be a long-term project um, that if we um, do pursue um, active selection for resistance then we need to understand what a breeding and selection program may look like. But there's also useful information in understanding the susceptibility of trees from a specific location because that informs a risk assessment for that area. And so even if we don't go down the path of actually deliberately crossing between resistant trees, there's still really helpful management information just in knowing how vulnerable a particular area is to disease. Thanks, Nari. That was Nari Williams, and we also heard from Colin Falls, and they're both at Crown Research Institute, Scion. Kei te whakaronga mai kwe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pānaki tō tātou au whānui. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. I'm Alison Balance, and this week, as part of the Land Care Research Manaki Whenua Annual Garden Bird Survey, thousands of citizen scientists are out and about across the country counting our feathered neighbours. The news is rather sobering. Ten years of these counts have shown declines in quite a number of mostly introduced species such as starlings and song thrushes. Native silverine numbers are down nationally, while introduced greenfinches and the endemic tui have increased slightly. The picture for native forest birds is slightly rosier in Wellington City, where Greater Wellington and Wellington City Council have been monitoring their numbers. Here's Greater Wellington's Philippa Crisp to tell us more. In 2011, we put 100 bird count stations across Wellington's 
parks and forests their reserves, so the forested habitat of their reserves, and these were randomly allocated. We monitor those every year during spring, and they're counted twice at those stations, so that's about 200 counts each year. So experts go out, the people who know how to recognise their birds? Yes, yes. These are very experienced bird counters, and we try to keep the same observer as much as we can so that we minimise that variation between years. And are you seeing change? Uh, yeah, well, for three species, we're pretty confident now that they're increasing. So it's, it's really good news for those three. So they are Tui, Kaka and Red Crown Parakeet. Fantastic. I have to say that you can walk around central Wellington now in the Botanic Gardens, down around Parliament, all around Ara Valley. The sound of Kaka is part of the sound of the city now. It is. It's amazing. And, you know, we have to thank Zealandia for that. They um, reintroduced kaka to the area. They were locally extinct from here, and Zealandia brought them back. So part of the key to this is having this fenced, predator-free sanctuary in the middle of the city. Uh, definitely. But I, I also want to say that all the pest control work that's happened in, in, those, in the, our forests in the Wellington area through the work of Wellington City Council, Greater Wellington, but also this hundred-odd care groups that are doing all this work are making that big difference as well, keeping those pest levels down, you know, the things that can impact our birds. And we also, as a city, and I say that because I live here, obviously, um, we do have lots of green space. We've got the town belt. We do have a lot of reserves. Yeah. And that's fantastic. And it's been really interesting to see that some of the the, the areas where they get the most uh, counts of, of native species are those old growth forests of Otari, Wilton's Bush and Kandala Park. So it's fantastic that Wellington saved these areas. So as a Wellingtonian, the bird that I really see in my garden and that seems to just be going from strength to strength is Tui. Yes, so Tui seem to have been doing the best, probably. Um, and they, uh, there was a relic population, just a small number of Tui uh, in Wellington, uh, before all this pest control started and before Zealandia was there. And they've just taken off. They've just done really, really well. Whereas Kaka and, and Red Crown, they've been reintroduced by the sanctuary. Yeah. Red Crown parakeets are also very abundant out on Machu Soames Island as mm. well. So would they cross the water from there? They're thought to have. I know Pororua Scenic Reserve, they think that they came there from across the water, so that's great as well. <laughs> Actually, I remember someone in Zealandia saying that they had kept finding unbanded kakariki there as well, which were clearly turning up from somewhere else. Yep, yep. So I think, you know, we have to acknowledge... Uh, all the work that's been done, because there has been quite a bit of work done in pest control across the region, really, and I think that that's helped these species come back. And the other thing that's being muted at the moment with um, uh, Wellington City Council is maybe a more pork night count, uh, because obviously these don't get so picked up in these bird uh, counts because they're a nocturnal species. So kaka, tui... Kakariki doing pretty well. What about some of the other species? So out of the, all the species that we are getting counts for, we are focusing on about 18 native forest bird species because they're the ones that would make their home here. So uh, the other 15 are stable. They're not trending down, but we can't say at the moment that they've shown a statistical increase. But that's really good news because they're all um, hanging in there and doing okay as well. 
What about places like Miramar Peninsula, which I know has quite an ambitious goal to try and be predator-free? Yeah. We also this year did a special count there. So with Wellington City, we um, had a grid uh, put across Miramar Peninsula and got extra counts there. At the moment, there seem to be a lot of introduced species, but there are also quite a few natives. But probably habitat is the big thing there, and we're encouraging everyone to plant a native tree in their back garden if they can, because that will help our native species. So as you've said, that's the old growth forests that tend to be the really valuable places in the city. Yeah, but still, I mean, we're getting quite exciting results about seeing things all across the city. Um, So on top of those uh, standardised counts, we gather citizen science data, especially through eBird, which is a database, and adding that data to just see the presence, absence of birds, and it's a fantastic picture for some species. You can see... Uh, like how the kaka have moved out from Zealandia over time but you can also see like very sensitive things like Saddleback about it at the moment they're just outside the sanctuary because they get hit by the pests they're, they're much more sensitive to, to pests So I've done a story before about the Pole Hill Sanctuary mm. in Arrow Valley with the people who are trapping there and yeah they have kaka and tiaki and yeah. robins, all sorts of things nesting and they're, they're birds that have come over for the fence from the sanctuary and yep. are spilling out. Yeah, fantastic work that they're doing. But can some of those species expand? And that's really a good question uh, for people trying to investigate how we could help those species move further afield. Yeah. There are some other conversations for people in the city to have around things like cats as well. So people yeah, are quite happy true. to catch <laughs> rats. Wellington's pretty good in terms of possums, isn't it? Yes, we've been doing possum control for many years now. And, um, like, for instance, Miramar Peninsula is uh, possum-free. And uh, across the city, they're in pretty lower numbers now because of all that work, yeah. Do you get any complaints about the increase in bird numbers? Uh we haven't. I think Wellington City sometimes gets com- some complaints about kaka and tui being noisy, but I think we think that that's not a bad complaint to have. The most exciting bird sighting that I've had this year, as I live on the side of Mount Victoria, but a- away from the city, as I was walking home and I heard a falcon. Oh, wow. Yep, no, we're getting falcon. I mean, obviously they are birds that have larger territories than others, so they're not as in big numbers as you get other species, but they're looking as though they're trending in a stable manner as well. So do you have any sense of how Wellington compares to other cities around New Zealand? To my knowledge, this is the only sort of uh, long-term monitoring that we've had uh, in a city. Um, I know other areas are getting much more into that. Hamilton are doing quite a bit of work. But I think the fact that all of those species are either increasing or stable, I think is just really good news for a city. Thanks, Philippa. That was Philippa Crisp, and she's the Greater Wellington Team Leader for Land, Ecology and Climate. And that's the show. You can listen to those stories again and check out the written feature and photos at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. And we're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. And if you haven't got around to counting your backyard birds yet, you still have a little bit of time to take part in the New Zealand Garden Bird Survey. Thanks for listening. I'm Alison Balance, and it's time to wish you good night. Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 